Welcome to the fourth episode of Regulate Tech with me, Nicholas Baird-Lumblad, and... Me, Richard Allen. And we're back this time to discuss uh, something that I think has been on a lot of people's minds for uh, for quite a long time, actually. And it's the future of news, of journalism, of the relationship between news and journalism to tech platforms and how that all sticks together. So let's start with, with some of the fundamentals. Why do you think we have such an intense debate about the future of news? What is it that's happening here? I mean, it's curious in a way because... At one level, if you look so demographically at the kind of people who work for tech companies and the kind of people who work in the news, that they're often very similar. And I think they, are, they have sort of similar social values, uh, similar intentions. You, you, you look at you know why companies like Google were set up and so on, and the idea was we, we want to get information to people. Uh, a very, very sort of similar motive to the motive of people in the news business. And yet we've ended up in this very curious situation where they're often seen as head-to-head and competing with each other. And, and I think right now there's this situation in Australia, which people who follow the industry will see as a sort of feels like this very tense debate of tech companies against the news media. Um, so, so that is curious at one level. I mean, why people who who both believe in getting information to people, some working in the tech sector, some working in traditional media, have ended up in this fight. And I think at the heart of it, essentially, it is about money. We may as well just get that straight out there. (laughs) It's about the fact that at a time when tech companies have been able to make more and more money from distributing information, news media have found it increasingly hard to make money from a similar business, which is distributing information. Well, and I think that's the that's a really important point you're making, right? Because we're we're describing them as similar endeavors or similar projects, but at the heart of it, they're competitors, right? So there's a competitive pressure here. Yet that's not exactly how the debate is playing out, right? If you think about the dynamics of this debate, on one side you have the news industry claiming to be an important, fundamental democratic institution. And on the other hand, you have the tech platforms who are being said to undermine the very institutions of democracy. If you if you sort of if you do a coarse grain simplified way of sketching out the dynamics. Um, why is that? So I mean in in a sense, again, um, I'll get a perhaps shot out for saying this, but let's let's again just get it out there. Often in regulatory debates, what you have is t- two people in a commercial negotiation seeking to gain advantage th- through the regulatory structure that's put in place. So that they're going to negotiate with each other. And we've seen this in in the copyright industry more broadly. Every time you ratchet up. The, the sort of penalties for illegally distributing copyrighted material and so on, it, it gives the people who own those copyrights a stronger hand when they're negotiating with the platforms through which that material will be distributed. And I, and I think, in a sense, you're seeing that here. And again, I'm not saying that is not a value judgment. This is normal. If I, if, you know, I worked in business, you worked in business. If you're on the tech company side, frankly, your job is to try and create a regulatory framework where the cost to the, your company of the material distributing is as low as possible and if you're on the other side where you're producing the content your job is to try and get a regulatory framework where you can extract the maximum price possible for the content you're distributing so, so we should be clear in the say in the sense that there is you know people throw in lots of issues uh, into the debate but at the heart of it i think is a 
a, a commercial set of negotiations between people who own content and people who distribute content with both sides seeking a regulatory framework that will benefit them in that negotiation. And I think, but I think it's interesting. I think neither you or I would deny that journalism has a fundamental role to play in a dem democracy, right? So it's we wouldn't say that journalists are just in it for the money. We both think that there is a social institution here, a function that's super important and that really needs to be valued. The thing I think that that most people don't observe is that there's a there's a slide from saying you know journalism is a fundamental institution of democracy to saying news is a fundamental institution of democracy. Journalism can be organized in a lot of different ways, and news is just one commercial model of distributing content, isn't it? It is, and I also think it, you know both things can be true, that, that something is you know, socially and democratically valuable, and it is a business that needs to be funded. So I, I think, it's, again, to say that, that the news industry is, is looking for commercial events in these negotiations is not to say they're doing anything wrong because they have to sustain themselves um, and their historics or source of funding have gone. So, so they can, as I say, both be important social institutions. Journalism can be an important social institution. I think you're right to sort of distinguish those two things. And again, if we look at the music industry, it's, it's different content, but but some of the same dynamics are there. You know, pe people create music not just for the money; they create music because they believe in art and they want to create art. And 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 that form of musical art is extremely valuable to to all of us. Um, but somehow, you need to sustain a model in which those artists are able to continue to be artists. It may be a different model from the models that went previously, where it was the you know, the record labels that, um, you know, held the big funds and were able to distribute those to artists uh, and in return were were controlling the means of distribution. Now, maybe somebody else who now does the distribution and you need to find another way to get money to the artist. But in, in both cases, we should be thinking about journalists who, in a sense, are news artists and, uh, you know, other forms of creative content that people are able to make and then distribute now through the online platforms. And it seems to me that the demand for good journalism has never been greater. I think that there's a huge demand for good journalism, for in-depth journalism, for journalism that, that really tries to get at the heart of something that's happening in, in large social change, for example. So, so it, there's the, the, the distinction between the two seems important. Yet, I think there is, there is still something to the argument that journalism in our society is is if not under threat, if that's overly dramatic, it's at least under a lot of pressure. Um, and the platforms are often identified as the cause of that pressure. You know, journalists now find more often than not that they're forced to to write for clicks, to write for for uh, eyeballs, and you know, you you see the the headlines changing into into this clickbait culture. Um, so, is there a negative impact you think from from platforms on the way we consume news rather than the economics behind it? Um, so, so, I think well, so, so something fundamental has shifted, which which was. Um, that in the old days, when I say old days, I mean like 30 years ago, uh, not like longer. And if you, you know, there, there was a steady income stream that funded people to be journalists. And that steady income stream, in some cases, was you know, from, from sales of copies of uh, particular publications, but quite a lot of it came from uh, advertising. And the advertising revenue was there, I think, in many cases, because 
news publications had were the only way that that people with products to sell could access an audience. I, I was brought up in a city called Sheffield, and and Sheffield actually had a morning newspaper and an evening newspaper, and and they could fund themselves because if you wanted to advertise your shop that was in Sheffield, you know, want to advertise to, to potential customers, or you had a, a job going in Sheffield, really the only efficient way to reach large numbers of people in Sheffield was through that local newspaper. And, and that meant there was a steady income stream that could pay for journalists to write about Sheffield. Um, and, and if you read people like Alan Rusbridger, who who used to be the editor of The Guardian in the UK, he, he has a great you know, uh, sort of memoir where he writes about those days when he worked in in uh, British local newspapers and how you, know, you made good margins. There was good profit coming in uh, that allowed a whole generation of journalists to, to to develop their craft. And I think there is, you know, that's at the heart of the crisis. That there are now lots of other ways for people with a product to sell to get to people in Sheffield or anywhere else for that matter. And and the most efficient routes now are the platform routes. So so you can efficiently reach people through the platforms at lower cost um, and more efficiently than you could do through a kind of traditional news publication. Therefore, advertisers or people with products to sell are not... Um, I was going to say that their their focus is on efficiency. I mean, they're not going to keep using a less efficient channel just for nostalgic reasons. So they have shifted their money to these more efficient channels, and that does leave journalists without this steady income stream. And that's the reality, and that's the one we have to think about. And and if you think of journalism as a craft, like any other business, where you know, knowing you've got a steady income or having a steady income over 10, 15, 20 years is what allows you to get to the top of your profession. The fact that those opportunities aren't there in anything like the the numbers they were there before is is very damaging for the profession. And, and perhaps that's the, the area I think that we should have most concern about, that there's a whole group of professionals who were carrying out a job in society that do not have an obvious means of supporting themselves. Um, and you can imagine analogously if you, you know, if you withdrew the funding from academia, if there was no core funding for universities and academics had to depend on, you know, getting clicks and eyeballs for the papers they publish, it would be a very different world from the world we have today where academics can, can rely on an income stream and develop their skills over 20 years. So in a sense, what's happened to journalists is it's like withdrawing the funding from the university so that, you know, you're left dependent on on scratching around for funds. Well, we are also, in a sense, I think, simplifying because we, we talk about journalism, we talk about the news industry as if it was this big, homogenous thing. But what you see out there is tons of new business models that seem to be succeeding and seem to have moved to where the advertising is and integrate the new advertising platforms in their news offering. So, you know, they will they will typically um, be more narrow, sometimes more local. Um, they will uh, not think of themselves as a subscription business model or, you know, even as a, as a newspaper model. But I think that the, the main focus for them, if you look at their business model, one way of describing it is to say that they sell articles. And the articles then sort of, if there are enough of them that are interesting, it triggers your 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 willingness to pay for for the whole thing and in that way they can build quite robust business models so you have this new media space you have the old media space and there's a transition in between them um just out of interest what should the government's role be when there is like a transition like that should it be to to sort of support the existing business models this is sort of a 
a giveaway question or should it be to sort of push the transition or should it be to be hands off completely i mean you're right there's some really interesting stuff happening that often doesn't sort of make the headlines and i I was fortunate enough to spend some time uh, last year at the reuters institute for the study of journalism in oxford where you know there's some really interesting groups that they managed to pull together talking about these new kinds of business models. I mean, the, the podcast format we're on now is, in a sense, a business model that didn't exist, uh, you know, 15 years ago that has, has come to the fore. And there are people effectively doing journalistic work, uh, putting it into podcast format and able to make a living. There's there's the whole sort of growth of new newsletter formats. There's all sorts of exciting stuff happening. I, I mean, to, to follow your leading question, I actually, <laughs> you know, I, well, if you want something that's sustainable, gov- government intervention is rarely sustainable. Gov- government intervention can help to make a transition work um, and it can sort of soften the, the blows um, but it's not sustainable unless you are going almost like for full nationalization. So, so if you, if you want to say that, you know, and again, somewhere like the UK has this in the BBC, uh, we, we have a very clear, I mean, very big chunk of our uh, media sector, actually, um, particularly new sector is explicitly funded by the government on a, well, funded by British people through a government mandate on a long-term basis. So that, that is sustainable, but even there, I mean, people calling into question whether it's right or not i think government interventions where you're propping up you know private businesses on a long-term basis i think are inevitably going to fall by the wayside the government's going to change and somebody else is going to come along and go like why are we spending money on this and, and not on higher priority public uh, purposes um but some short-term intervention where government can can help through a transition i think is often makes sense but i think where um you know, the debate in Australia and other places going is essentially to say it's not about the government propping things up, but it is about creating a regulatory framework where the government requires one piece of industry to financially support another piece of industry. And that, again, I I really question whether or not that's sustainable. I mean, it, it's not saying it's going to be government funds, so you avoid the, the sense of, well, I'm spending taxpayers' money on it. Great. Because I say giving taxpayers money to large media corporations is probably not going to, to be a long-term winning strategy. But to say I'm, I'm going to take money from this other sector, well, again, uh, we should be really candid. Typically, it's about taking money from large U.S. corporations and giving it to local businesses. Well, that's the perception, at least. And so politically, that perhaps is more sustainable. But is it is it is it going to produce a, a you know thriving economy over the long term? Like, you have to question whether that kind of cross subsidy model is is ever going to be um, something that will prov- produce you know what you want over the long term. And indeed, what it may do is is in some senses divert you from uh, uh, the newer business models where local industry, you know, there'll be local competitors to the people that the government is seeking to prop up, um, who may be stifled by the fact that the government is saying, look, I'm going to take money from these big platforms, give it to some big local media companies. uh, And that's great for the big local media companies, but there may be a raft of competitors to those media companies that, that actually now are disadvantaged relative to where they were before. So if we turn a critical eye on on what the platforms have done historically here, I mean, one of the questions would be, 
you see Facebook now entering into agreements with news publishers. Google is doing the same thing. They're sort of seeking some kind of commercial relationship. France is one example. Um, and, and Facebook has, has doing this for quite some time. In fact, there's been many small partnerships between publishers and the tech platforms that, that have existed for quite some time. But, but is there something about the pace with which the platform built this out? Are they doing too little too late? And sort of have they brought this on themselves to a certain degree by not thinking hard enough how, about how, how they should not prop up to, to sort of go back, but, but how they should perhaps encourage change or build uh, relationships that discourage the other party from going to the government to, to get a, uh, some kind of subsidy across regulation. I mean, I think there's a, a perennial problem, which I'm, again, we've both experienced, which is there is a risk that, you know, particularly sort of Silicon Valley type platforms appear arrogant and inconsiderate of, of the worlds into which they're trading. They're the, the proverbial bull in the China shop that, that sort of comes into a market and doesn't really care what it destroys along the way. And I think I think there has been a, we should be really candid, a sort of lack of sensitivity to, to some of the institutions in in countries where platforms are spread and and people have only caught up to it later and oh right okay, these are important institutions um maybe we should you know show some respect and i think that's a perennial silicon valley problem on the other hand you know you can argue if you show too much respect for the existing institutions you would never build the new stuff so th- there's a balance there somewhere i think what's where we where we sort of end up is that there is a value on news product uh, and the, there's a value for the platforms i think you know, again, in a classic sort of negotiation, the producers of those news products are, are, I think, almost inevitably going to overstate their value. They're going to say that they're worth a fortune. They're going to believe that, you know, no one would go to social media platform unless their content was being shared over it. Um, and on the other side, the platforms are going to perennially, I think, sort of undervalue that product uh, because, again, it's in their commercial interest to say, well, yes, your product's useful, but not that useful. And then you're going to kind of both sides are going to get together and eventually come up with a value. And, and, and we saw this again. I think these examples are really, really helpful for, for understanding where we are now. We saw this with music licensing. You know, originally a platform like YouTube, uh, uh, you know, was sort of fairly... Uh, the right adjective, but but sort of fairly unconcerned with people using copyrighted music in clips that they shared on YouTube. I think it's fair to say the music industry came along and said, well, you know, that's our product. We've got copyright over this and we want a lot of money. And YouTube said, we'll give you a little bit of money because there is some value and we hate having to, you know, cut out all of the music, but it's not worth that much. And eventually they agreed on the price and that's how it works today. And in every country, you know, platforms like YouTube and now Facebook does it as well. They sit down with the music industry and they they come up with a price uh, reflecting the fact there is value to to the platforms in having that copyrighted material. And and I think that's sort of where we'll end up as well with other forms of uh, um, created content, uh, of which journalism is another example, where you'll end up with a price. Um, but that process is quite painful. And I think, you know, the, to the example you cited of, of um, uh, platforms now giving money to news publishers is in a way platforms trying to control the price. So they're sort of saying, look, if we've, this is how much we're willing to pay. We've given you that much. Sort of like if you accept it, then you've accepted that that is the right price. Um, so, so as I say, they're both you know classic. You know, news media says my content's worth a billion. A tech company says no, it's worth a hundred million. If tech company has created a program where it's giving away a hundred million, 
that's kind of creating this baseline price, which is 100 million, not a billion. And so when you come to later negotiations, they'll, they'll, they'll use that. Uh, and again, we be candid that that's sort of what's going on. And, and mm. as a citizen, I would like to come back to like, what's my interest as a citizen? I, I would not want us to end up in the situation that's been threatened, uh, where the platforms don't carry any, you know, professional news content because uh, of these licensing issues. I don't think that's a great outcome as a citizen, but but nor do I think as a citizen that uh, uh, um, it would be a great outcome if platforms were sort of held back or somehow forced only to distribute the news content from a small number of licensed players and and were unable to offer me the rich variety of different forms of news and journalistic content. So as a citizen, I kind of want both. Yeah, but that's that's such an important perspective, though, and it's one that's rarely discussed. Because if you think about what um, what sort of most platforms are engaged with, it's it's you could describe this as an information discovery industry. You're able to discover information, which means that you can discover information that is new. You can discover information that is old. You can discover new actors and old actors. And one of the things that we uh, saw in studies from Spain, uh, where where Google uh, decided to discontinue the offering of its Google News service was that um, what immediately happened was that some of the traffic, not all of the traffic, returned to the old established incumbent players, but the new players no longer had any opportunity to be discovered, which meant that they got a lot less traffic and that their ability, their path to growth was essentially... um, it was essentially cut off. And I think there is something here that the citizen perspective, what we want as citizen is media plurality, right? We want a set of different news sources. And we want change in the way that journalism is organized, the way it's produced, the way it's offered in different ways. And it, it seems that, that that citizen perspective, media plurality, the discovery of new services, of new forms of journalism, is rarely in the discussion. It's much more focused on this notion of survival of a fundamental institution for democracy. Um, that in a way at least I feel has to be a, a failure on on behalf of, of the platforms not being able to point to that value that's inherent in, in allowing new companies to grow new forms of journalism t- to flower yeah I mean that's, that's one of the things where um, you know I think things like targeting and uh, filter bubbles and all of this stuff is, so we, we've created this notion that of something really negative around specialization and personalization within platforms. And yet that's the stuff that allows people to create, for example, a new niche publication that uh, is aimed at a particular audience, get their niche publication out there in a way that they probably never could have done before because they they couldn't find the, you know, 100,000 people around the world who are interested in that particular subject. And they certainly couldn't make money out of it so so you're right the platforms have created this i think that more opportunities for plurality than we've ever had before but those opportunities are often using the very forms of technology that that are are most controversial and and people get most concerned about um and and that's a very difficult issue i don't think the platforms have got that right at all the 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 assumption is you know micro targeting and all of this stuff is the the way that um dodgy fascists or extremists uh, sort of build up their audiences missing the fact that it's also the same set of tools that are used by people for these uh, very creative new forms of publication and so that i think is part of the debate people people 
um, don't have the full picture of uh, everything that you know the platforms are enabling. Uh, uh, but there is also, yes, there's, there's, I mean, again, if I worked for a news company, it's always really good. I mean, you should, if you're, particularly if you're working public policy, think, well, what if I was on the other side? You know, what would, what would I argue? Yeah. And, and frankly, I would really push this with fundamental institutions for democracy line if I was representing, you know, the large established traditional news players, because that is going to resonate most strongly with politicians. Uh, it, it has a, foundation of truth to it it's not to dismiss it it's a it's a real argument you know this these are the spaces we have we have sort of very well established ways of conducting political debate uh, and these are sort of useful spaces where that debate is conducted um so again not to dismiss it but that is their strongest card um uh, the bit that gets interesting for me is 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 where those established industries though uh, um in a sense, are are dissing <laughs> these newer players by saying, "Look, we're the only ones who can be trusted," and and so they're almost using this debate as well as a way potentially of limiting competition from these new people who are coming into the market who are using these these platform tools very effectively to build up their own audiences. Again, it's you know the big transition has been advertising revenue from traditional news media to platforms, but there's also something else happening, which is uh, people with perhaps smaller, newer publications being more attractive uh, for any kind of subscription revenue that's out there than these large general purpose news uh, publishers. And and that, I think, is, I mean, you mentioned it earlier about sort of producing articles rather than a, a publication. I think one of the uh, more profound questions is, is this question of whether people are willing to pay for something that is sort of BBC-like, as in it produces the whole spectrum of general news, as opposed to them seeing value in something that's much more niche and narrow. Well, and, and that is a really, I mean, it's worth to unpack that, I think, because one of the things that, that we were talking about, this, this fundamental institution of democracy thing, the tension there should be, I suppose, in the very first line between uh, something that's publicly funded and a commercial enterprise. And both the platforms and the, the news companies that are currently fighting the platforms are both privately financed. And if you go to to a lot of the, the news uh, newspapers and you ask them about public service, they feel very strongly that the BBC or, or the Swedish public service uh, should not be allowed to have a website, for example, because that falls outside of the public remit. There's a lot of criticism against publicly funded news. Although the argument that this is an institution that's fundamental for democracy seems to directly come into conflict with that. If it is indeed a fundamental democratic institution, then we should find ways of paying for it as citizens and not necessarily sort of making this distinction between new commercial and old commercial that's currently the one that seems to be dominating debate and i i but i i do have a lot of sympathy with the politician if you sort of always should set, put yourself in the in the opposite camp i think if you put yourself in the politician's camp which is sort of the third person in this debate you really want to make sure that there is some kind of i think president obama called this a shared baseline of facts and you're concerned over the enormous proliferation of what you perceive to be propaganda and fake news and and just alternative realities that uh, seem to to expand all the time in in different political spheres and so so as a politician i think you're you're your safe bet, not necessarily your best bet, but your safe bet is to look at these 
old incumbent newspapers and say, we, we just have to get people to read newspapers again. Or, or if you're not in the US, but you're in Europe, we just have to get people back into public service. So we, so we can have this campfire effect where a lot of us gather around the campfire and listen to the same stories. We start behaving as a society again. Um, that temptation has to be terribly strong, don't you think? It, it is, and I, and I think you're right. The politician is the third player, and, and there is a large element of uh, better the devil you know than the one you don't. And, and I look at the again, the UK market is really interesting. Uh, um, you know, we have a I would say a sort of right wing populist kind of newspaper in the Daily Mail, and we have a very sort of uh, uh, sober left wing newspaper in the in the Guardian. And if you talk to politicians, you know, politicians on the left hate the Daily Mail. Uh, they they see it as awful. They see it as pushing out fake news and, and and trotting a sort of populist line, but within the limits of what they're they're familiar with. And equally, politicians on the right hate the Guardian, and they think that you know it's it's like full of propaganda and and uh, uh, completely distorts reality. But within that world of Daily Mail Guardian, as I say, it's a known space. Um, where, where, what I think most politicians feel comfortable with is, even if they're very critical of the players, that they're they're okay with that as the game. Uh, it's a known game, and and then everything outside of that is much more scary and risky. And so that does give a real um, strength to the lobbying by people within that uh, existing world um, when they're talking to politicians, you know, because politicians want to, whatever dispute they have with the individual players in the space, they're comfortable with the space as a whole. But this brings on to another like, like fascinating area, again, when you work in tech is, uh, um, and you may have had this experience as well, well at Google, that if you're trying to define you know, policies, one of the areas that you might want to look at is say, well, well, we will create a different set of rules for, however you want to frame it, legitimate publications or the mainstream news media or whatever name you want to brand- bandy around it, you know, something that would encompass the Daily Mail and the Guardian, but not include, you know, sort of odd individual uh, political bloggers somewhere off to the side of the spectrum, even if they're saying very similar things to the things that are being said in the Daily Mail and the Guardian, trying to create a definition, like a workable definition of what a journalist is, what a news media publication is, is fascinating. Um, and so, again, it's one of those debates where we talk in very general terms and say you need to have, if you accept that line of argument, special treatment for the news media. And yet when you dig into it and say, okay, what exactly do you mean by the news media? That gets really, really challenging. That would be another area to unpick. Again, I'm always keen to let's be precise. If you're going to say do something, be very precise about what you mean. Um, so, and also be very precise about the entry and exit requirements, right? I mean, it shouldn't be that it defines only a set of already established players as the only ones that can claim to be journalists. If so, a very simple criteria that I've run across when I've had this discussion is, you know, if you are actually going to abide by the decisions of the ethics councils for press that exist in several different European countries, then at that point you can consider yourself a, a journalist, or you can consider yourself a publisher if you register as a local publisher. Those rules need to be open in order to make sure that if you uh, if you have these definitions and you work from them when you do your policies they cannot be conserving the status quo. And I think that's the other thing that that is uh, is really important and often overlooked, that your definitions can't be exclusionary. And I think in some cases, when you talk about journalism, you can even say that you should look at the intent. If there's journalistic intent about 
publishing something, that should actually be enough. And it's a very loose criterion, but I think that we probably gain as a society a fair bit from having an inclusive, open, and really wide definition of journalism as something to be protected from a freedom of expression perspective, from sort of an intellectual debate perspective. But I, I mean, I agree with you in principle. I think it, this is where, though, it often the, the wheels come off in practice, because again, yes, if you take that very inclusive definition, then that does mean you're in, going to include people that other people think are you know, beyond the pale and, and shouldn't be included. And, and the, you know, the examples are rife at the moment, ma- mainly again on the sort of populist right. Uh, there are all these sort of news publications that we all talk about all the time. And, uh, um, you know, the Breitbart's, the Newsmaxes, the OANs and all of this. So, so very quickly, uh, if you're trying to create a definition that says, you know, I'm going to offer special treatment of some kind or particular treatment to news media slash journalists, you'll very quickly say, get asked the question, well, does that include those people? Like who's in, who's out? Um, and if you have the very broad definition, which which I agree, I think in principle is feels better than a narrow definition, then you are going to include a lot of people that other people say, well, your your definition is meaningless. You're, you know, how the hell can you go about offering privileges to those people? Because I fundamentally disagree with those people. I mean, even a publication like the Daily Mail in the UK, which which is about as mainstream as you could get. It's one of the biggest selling newspapers. Um, you know, entirely legitimate. It's it's it sits within all of the normal sort of uh, press complaints type structures. Although in the UK, even those are highly politicised because there's been there's a lot of disagreement about which are the right self regulatory bodies. But anyway, it sort of sits within that framework. There are people in the UK who would say, you know, if a platform like Facebook or Google offered privileges some kind of special treatment or placement for the daily mail they would be outraged and say how how can you do that for these people um so if you can't even include the daily mail wow you know when you get to some of these other independent publications you're you're really stuck and and i think this is really important to address because again we talk in these generalities you need to do something special for news media because news media is at the heart of democracy except not those news media, just these news media. Um, you need to make sure that you, you know, keep the fake news people out and so you've got, you've got to promote news media content over and above the stuff from the other people. But, but those other people who call themselves news media, well, they're, no, they're the ones we want excluded. They're the ones we want demoted. We want the, so you very quickly get into value judgments about who you're going to promote, who you're going to demote, who you're going to give special treatment sort of inclusive special treatment too and who you're going to try and and shove out the exclusive uh, special treatment i I would love us to move on to that debate uh um you know i think it's important to get to those specifics from the generalities very quickly and just the final dimension is you know you have to do this country by country which is another huge challenge because the regulatory frameworks are very different as they exist today i think in for example in sweden i think you have a uh, effectively a, a regulated press as in a, a press law only where where um uh, uh, there are that's right there are particular advantages to declaring yourself to be inside you get a freedom of expression advantage if you declare yourself to be inside it's a kind of rights and responsibilities framework also vis-a-vis data protection frankly yeah, yeah, exactly. uh, because there's an exemption there yeah no, you're right uh, yeah and you know that doesn't exist in the uk for example completely different doesn't exist in the us so so if you were trying to say you know what's the framework actually the swedish one might be relatively 
simple as in, you know, people are voluntarily saying uh, and, and they're signing up to something which makes them a news publisher. For most other countries in the world, it's such a mixed bag. And try, trying to define what a news publisher is is almost impossible. But but you would have to do that if you're going to have a policy that says special treatment for news media in the name of democracy or whatever it is. Um, at some point, you've got to decide who's in or out. And these in-out decisions are are the ones that are often hardest and where a lot of these policies end up foundering. Interestingly, you referred earlier to the fact that, um, you know, the, the, the platforms are giving out money without being required to do so by a regulator. I mean, one of the advantages of those systems is the platforms get to decide who to give it out to. And again, even there, there will be people who contest that and say, you know, platforms again. Why? Why would you give money to the Daily Mail? You're you're propagating hatred. You should, you know, only give money to the Guardian because they're the ones who who tell the truth. And others will say vice versa. So we're going to get stuck pretty quickly. Absolutely, and I think I think the fact that you get stuck pretty quickly when you're trying to define um, who's who's in or who's out in in traditional press is interesting because it also allows us to to actually reflect a little bit over the state of um, the state of of the press overall uh, and look a little bit at history because one of the things that sort of always strikes me in these discussions is that we we tend to have this uh, idolized view of of the news as a fundamental institution of democracy there's truth to that there really is truth to that especially when it comes to journalism and there are some shining examples of it but if we just go back to the beginning of the current news industry or we go back to to the beginning of the 20th century the kind of of news we had then was very reminiscent of of the blogosphere or of the, the sort of platforms or and it took almost a hundred years easily to get to the point where there was a normative structure up around news where there was you know ethics where there was laws in some countries etc and and we're just sort of beginning to move that structure or that set of responsibilities over into an entirely new environment that allows for orders of magnitude more voices and and I think there's there's something about this that is interesting because the one criticism, for example, that we often get is that you cannot those business models that the platforms have are not sustainable. You are essentially living off of advertising, which means that people uh, you will sort of prioritize content that is sensational and that is you know it's violent and divisive and polarizing in different ways. And and since you do that, you are going to affect society negatively. And I, I always have to think when I see this. I mean, this 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 goes back to the history of news, right? If it bleeds, it leads. There's no difference. The business model of, of, of a platform and its advertising is no different from the business model of, of a newspaper. Yet the, there is this sort of dissonance in the public debate uh, about how to interpret the two. And it mostly comes down to tenure in many cases. The fact that the news industry has been around for 100 years. Um, what do you think you could do if you're a platform to accelerate the maturity uh, of what's happening online vis-a-vis the maturity of where the press got to after those hundred years. I think the observation is exactly right that we we can so idealize things that you know. So when I was brought up, the best-selling newspaper in the United Kingdom, you know, had topless women on on page three every day, and that was part of its appeal. And I don't think you would have called it highbrow. <laughs> so there's a there's a kind of real discrepancy between what sells in news and and sort of how we would like to think the news is but having said that um the fact that there were relatively few outlets 
meant it was a different environment, I think, from today, where, where there is this, in a sense, it is plurality. When you have plurality, you do have a different set of dynamics because now there is real choice. So you were choosing between you know, a limited number of publications across the spectrum. So the bestsellers tended to be the most dramatic, uh, uh, shall we say, and then uh, there were sort of more worthy publications also sold pretty well. But now you have this sort of massive, massive competitive d- dynamics. I think that is interesting. Um, what could you do to to accelerate things? I see it just in your in the comments you just made, I think it's really interesting. You, you talked about how you know, standards came into news over the last century, over the 20th century in particular. There, There is an opportunity, I think, to create novel standards for the world that we're now in with platforms. And so this notion of, if you want to frame it, sort of rights and responsibilities, I think is a really interesting one, um, which is, that's a, to, to a certain extent, I think, encapsulating the Swedish law, and that might be, might be an interesting model, but where you essentially say to people, look, if you, here's a set of things you can sign up to, if you want to be considered a legitimate news publication, but you know, and the platform will will respect that and will give you certain privileges if you've signed up to, to uh, accept certain responsibilities. And those codes, as I say, don't generally exist today. I mean, there, there are general codes that everybody who signs up to platform uh, has to abide by. But you can see that there could be potential there to say, look, you know, if there isn't a and again, people may get really, really react very negatively. This like, oh, it's the platforms again asserting themselves, but this doesn't have to be drawn up by the platforms on their own. It's something that could be drawn up by all of the people who are involved in this uh, business. But to say, look, here's a set of criteria. Uh, if a platform, you know, w- wants to create privileges for news publications, then as long as people meet these criteria, then they should get the privileges. And and those say criteria would include things like error correction. I mean, I think that's a fairly straightforward thing. You know, news publications do that today. Well, how about one that says, look, if you want to run a page on Facebook or a channel on YouTube and you want certain privileges, then you must offer, you know, a right to reply and people the ability to complain about the content you've made and where you've made an error, you must publicly correct that error. And that's your choice. You, you don't have to sign up to this thing, but you won't then get the privileges. So, so there's, I think, there's a model in there. And I say t- traditional news publications will do that anyway. Um, however much people complain about perhaps some of those news publications I've already talked about, you know, they, they are within a framework. And if you went to them and the story was patently wrong and the self-regulatory body found that it was patently wrong, they would have to publish uh, uh, some kind of correction to it. So that's the sort of thing you could say you could build in, um, and then and then you go to your Newsmaxes or your Breitbart's or whatever, and say, look, you know, do you want to sign up to this? If you do, you are signing up to the fact that you will faithfully correct things when you get them wrong. And if you're willing to do that, then you can be inside the family of people who will get the the, the um, privileges that come with being a news media publisher. But I say very sensitive <laughs> because it sounds like it's platform setting rules for news media. So I want to be really clear that I don't think this is platforms unilaterally doing it. But but can can, can the industry generally platforms, publishers, and others come up with those definitions? Um, and if they can't, <laughs> then we are back in the position we are in now, where you know, frankly, it'll be then up to the platforms unilaterally to decide who they want to invite in and who they want to keep out. 
Yeah. What about, I mean, another avenue that is sort of a a crazy idea would be for the platforms to say, look, uh, we believe that there's a real value in, in, uh, in qualitative journalism. And we believe that it's super important that qualitative journalism is available to as many people as possible. Therefore, we're going to set up a, a public service fund where anyone can apply for means to go away and do qualitative journalism on the condition that that's then published, published under a, an open license and available to as many people as possible. It's, it's sort of, it's, I think it was suggested some time ago by a few journalist students that this model of public service, where there is a fund that companies can pay into, but the state can pay into as well in order to fund journalism then then as widely available as possible, would serve uniquely the democratic institution concern, whereas paywalls and limited access, etc., seems to undercut that same democratic institution argument. So why don't platforms lean in more to the public service narrative and really work hard to make sure that public service is the kind of democratic institution it should be by setting up Funds is one idea. Another idea is helping public service companies have a better presence on, on their properties, etc. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious because that seems to me to serve the very legitimate concern around democratic institutions and journalism, without getting into the the commercial battle between uh, private news publishers and platforms. I think some of that has happened, and to, to give you. Um very specific example, something like court reporting in, in, in the UK, and it's probably the same for other countries, that they, they, one of the things that the local newspapers used to be able to afford to do when they when they had this um, sort of pretty exclusive ability to extract advertising revenue and they could fund these things, they would have a court reporter who would sit and record all the interesting court cases in somewhere like Sheffield, um, and then that would appear in the local newspaper. <clears throat> and since those revenue streams have gone, you know that hasn't been happening. So, so again, to your point, uh, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to say should should somebody fund on a public service basis an individual to sit there, record all the local court cases, so it's literally reporting as and re- recording that which has happened, make that available on a free and open basis, and it could be used by a local radio station, a local uh, blog, a local whatever. Um, anyone who's interested in that subject could take up the content. And and I certainly remember I think Facebook did some of that in the sense that it was it was investing in in consortia that were trying to do you know, that kind of local reportage to produce content that anyone could use. I think that's attractive, um, but I'm not sure that, well, I think it's, a tr- it's a sort of attractive as a model where, you know, to go back to the beginning of the conversation, if you think that the values of some of the internet platforms are that they believe in, you know, the power of information, particularly sort of freely available information, this is a social good, it would be entirely consistent with those values for platforms, if they had money, or that's charitable funding or foundation funding, whatever it is, if they had some money to, to want to fund the production of socially valuable information, l- reporting on local democracy, local events, etc. So I think that would be entirely consistent. And so I think it's definitely worth exploring. I'm not sure it answers though the full set of problems, which are, you know, that that I mean, it could almost be regarded as making it worse for the person who is clinging on to a business that is based on exclusively being able to report what's going on in that area. So so in a sense, it's sort of once you've accepted that the business model is gone completely, like no one is going to now ever have a local newspaper or a commercial local news outlet um, of the traditional style, 
then I think you can say, well, you know, let's fill the gap with these with these sort of free to air uh, uh, reportage, which other people can take and bundle up and find new ways to make money out of potentially. But but we're sort of accepting that there's no money in doing the reportage anymore, and I think that's that's probably the phase we're in now. I don't think everyone's sort of entirely given up, but I. I personally find it very interesting this idea uh, that businesses that believe in the value of information should be willing to pay for the production of useful socially useful information and it also takes the sting out of the democratic institution argument and points to i think an inconsistent in the democratic institution argument which is that democratic institutions typically are not things we need to pay for uh, either as businesses or as citizens so it's it's interesting to me that 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 avenue is is explored and i think you're right i mean it's mostly probably because of the crowding out function that it has that it sort of that it further uh, reduces the the commercial space for news um, but i can see a long future in which that is the the most reasonable response to the concern underlying a lot of the politicians view which is what is happening to my public sphere you know it's fragmenting it's breaking up i i i don't see uh, a society in there anymore i i just see a lot of disparate voices organizing in tribes and i want to figure out how we get back into the notion of a society the notion of a polity the notion of of some kind of of common interest that we can talk to and it, it seems to me that that the solution of, of paying for links falls short of that far short of of that concern and to me it's it's interesting. It's interesting that that discussion hasn't been broadened more into f- trying to figure out uh, what you always say. You know, have to figure out what the harm is, but you also have to figure out what the utility is that you're trying to protect. What's the value at the heart of the institution you're studying or the phenomenon that you want to understand? And at the heart of this is this notion of a functioning public sphere. Uh, and that not, as far as I can see, not at all being addressed as crisply by the current uh, legislative proposal. And that's also true for, for the European Commission proposals on um, on changes in copyright, for example. Yeah, there, there are a lot of, sort of assumptions that, that, you know, what was there previously is good and, and that we understand what was there previously. So, so you're right on the, you know, these proposals like paying for links to news. Well, that's sort of on the, I think that legislation is created on the assumption that we're talking about known publications, Le Monde, Figaro, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that's not, the law is not limited in any sense. So what, what happens when the world shifts? So again, the the uh, European equivalent of the Breitbarts become the people who are the ones pushing out links to news. If they're in the news definition and it's their links that are being shared, they should get the money under the, uh, again, if people are not familiar with this proposal, it's essentially it's saying that platforms uh, should be paying uh, news publishers reasonable sums of money for the fact that their content gets shared as links and snippets through the through the platforms. So again, I think that is really interesting that that's fra- that's sort of been established entirely on the notion that the people who will get the money under that proposal are are nice people, benign people, people who contribute to the public sphere. Um, concern I have is to say, let's look five or ten years down the track. Maybe some of those publications are no longer being shared widely but other publications are and it'll be the other publications that get the money and i wonder if the politicians will be coming back going we've created frankenstein's monster here we've created a system which requires the platforms to fund you know outlets that we think are crazy and extreme 
um, but they qualify, <laughs> and therefore the platforms have to give them the money. Oh, you know, um, and that's a very realistic concern to have. Just interesting again, as we as we think this through, um, your concept about the public sphere though is fascinating. Just from a UK perspective, and give me a UK minute here. It's that you know, at the same time as politicians are saying, "Oh my God, the public sphere is you know being destroyed, and it's a real shame." There's a massive political movement in the UK to to kind of defund the BBC. And so it's just this incredible uh, uh, two-faced, I think is the only way, word you can use to describe it, sort of two-faced approach of saying, you know, we're really worried about disinformation. We're really worried about the lack of a public sphere. And the public sphere that we do have, the, the place, you know, the BBC does that kind of neutral reportage, the one we just talked about in the context of local reporting, and their content is freely available to the whole world and they don't need to get advertising or clicks. So they are, you know, a, a sort of almost perfect example of... A, a true public sphere, an independent, reportage-based, not not sort of uh, click-driven for financial reasons entity, and yet the politicians are really gunning for them, and there's a, a good chance that they end up, you know, severely diminished over the next few years. So very confusing if you're <laughs> working in public policy here to say, well, which one do you want? Do you want the the public space or do you want the free-for-all? Because you're kind of asking us to do both at the moment, and that's really hard. I think I, you see the same thing in Sweden, where 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 the public service companies are under constant attack, mostly, mostly frankly from the right, I think, and where there's this sense that we shouldn't have a publicly owned TV and only dictatorships have that, etc. I think, I mean, my own leanings are the center right, but I I strongly feel that you're underestimating the value of public service to the notion of the public sphere, if that's where your your thoughts are going. And I I think the the question of partiality in in public service can be addressed in many other ways, and I think it's much better. To to think about what those ways are than to defund, to your point, defund um, what could be a core institution uh, in, in, in any democracy. Now, I wanted to, we're, we're sort of closing in on the hour, but I wanted to, there's one thing we should address, given that we're both interested in public policy as a craft, and that is uh, the kind of shocking naivete that that the tech industry has, has shown here, because you know, I, I, an old friend and mentor of mine reminded me of the the saying that that I had forgotten, but reminding me a few years ago of the saying that you should never pick a fight with somebody who buys ink by the barrel. Yeah. And how could how could the tech companies win? I mean, this the arena where the fight is fought, the 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 discussion is had, is the arena that is also the kingmakers in politics that decide who wins and who's on the up and who's on you know who's going out and going down. There, there is are are there any are there any real conditions for real debate here? Or is the tech industry just sort of thrashing in its over-reliance on rationality and, and sort of, a, a, I mean, this, this just has to be addressed, doesn't it? But I think you've just, yeah, you just said exactly what the problem is, an over-reliance on rationality. And again, I, you know, over years, I, I had this where you, you'd suddenly get the political heat would be ratcheted up. And then you go and look at the newspapers, you know, page one, there's a story about how, how your platform is, somehow complicit in distributing uh, child abuse material page three that you're distributing terrorist material page five that you're destroying some sector of the economy and and it on and on it would go and you know and they're entitled to that that's what they do but you're right you you sort of picked a fight and then they would advertise for that very newspaper on your platform yeah. the same, same day to get people to read it yeah and again to be, be entirely candid if i was on their side that's what i would do i would use the power of this incredible megaphone that i have um and and incredible access to politicians to, to kind of make my case so that you know that's what they would do so you're right that that fight was big wrong and i think your analysis is exactly right again in this area and as in many others 
you know, the, the rational, it is this over-reliance on rationality. Well, you know, um, people like our services, they don't like the news anymore. Advertisers, you know, this, this question is about advertisers can reach the people they want to reach through our service, not theirs. That's just the market. Tough, you've got to put up with it, you know, and, and we will win because because we're on the right side of the economics here. That sort of approach by platforms, I think, is sometimes uh, frequently actually sort of misses the the fact that you can make this less painful by by um being perhaps more sensitive to the things that you're destroying along the way um and again i think this is a recurrent theme now that that um is coming up I, I, again where i sit it's i would not want to be in that you know super conservative position of saying do not build anything new until you can be absolutely guaranteed it's safe and is not going to destroy anything i mean i think that that is the you know that destroys innovation and I'm I'm keen on that, but I think so. I guess innovation with sensitivity, if that's possible, is the right place to aim at. And I I do think in this area in particular, there's been sort of innovation without sensitivity, and the people that you have riled are people that are incredibly powerful in society, and it's painful. Uh, and we'll see that. I think Australia is the crunch moment. Everyone's looking at that, and I think that's right because that is the sharp end of the spear, where where the insensitive, rational platform has hit the very, very powerful media lobby. And we'll see where we end up. Should be interesting. Well, thank you so much. Um, and this concludes our conversation today. And you can find this podcast at Richard's website at regulate.tech. And uh, in other places where you get your podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts, among others. Um, we thank you for listening and we uh, love to accept only uh, all ideas or thoughts or objections or you know criticism is what we grow from. So do keep them coming and we will be back with you next week. Thank you so much. <laughs>